This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Josh Levine, the host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. Throughout the World Cup, we're going to bring you a podcast from our friends at the soccer magazine Howler. They'll have analysis from the games, news from outside the stadiums in Brazil, and reports from a writer embedded with the U.S. national team. I hope you enjoy this special podcast extra. And I'll now pass the mic to George Qureshi, the founder and editor of Howler. Take it away, George. Hello and welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Qureshi. I'm the editor of Howler, packed like a little sardine in this studio. Although, you know what? I have a lot of room today because Danny Carbassian, the only member of our little panel here who has scored a goal for Arsenal still, if you can believe that, is in South Carolina in some someone's closet so he can get really a quiet feed here. Danny, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Hello. Okay. And... uh Joining us from Bristol, England, not Connecticut, is the author of The Ball is Round and Fuji Ball Nation. It's a great book about Brazilian soccer that just came out. David Goldblatt. Hi, David. Hi. Hello. Okay. I feel really chipper today because we haven't had any soccer for at least a day. And I think I'm getting worn down by it. But, I, you know, there's so much stuff to talk about. Today we're going to cover some of the, the issues and, and themes that came out in the quarterfinals. Uh, we have the Dutch diving, the Dutch gamesmanship. We have the Argentines squeaking through, the the Brazilians making it through, albeit 
with a depleted lineup for the for the semifinal against Germany. And of course, Germany, I think they should just give Germany a free pass to the semifinals every year. That that just seems to be what happens anyway. Uh, so we're going to also take the conversation off the field. We have a look at the socioeconomic and racial makeup of the crowds in Brazil, which I think is really interesting. We also sit down with Sean Jacobs, a professor at the New School for Public Engagement in New York City. He's the founder and, and editor of the blog uh, and media collective Africa is a Country. Uh, we talk about the collapse of the Nigerian FA and the Ghanaian FA, the issues there, and some of the other things that came out when the African teams were, were struggling and maybe in Algeria's case and Nigeria's case succeeding uh, to an extent in this tournament. Another really busy show. Let's start with the quarterfinals. David, Danny, I want to talk about the Dutch. You know, here's the thing. Whenever people talk about gamesmanship and diving and complaining and whining, they always focus on Latin American teams. And I don't think that's fair because by far the most annoying team in this World Cup has been the Dutch. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, they're definitely an interesting team to watch because, as you said, most Latin teams get the brunt of the uh, abuse for diving and everything. And I think Aryan Robin, uh, to point out one player in particular, his he's reputation. A Dutch, he's perceives, a Dutch master at diving. He's so good. Yeah, he is very good. And, and what's what's bad now is that actually every time he does uh, get tackled, even if it's a if it's a fair tackle, and he was just kind of going over, it's everybody immediately says like, "Well, I have to see the replay first, <laughs> which is um, a bit of a shame uh, to be completely honest, because of how good of a player he is. But uh, but yeah, it is it it does put a little bit of a tarnish on the game, uh, especially because as I said, the number of times now, you know, every time he does get in and around the box, and and there's a situation where a couple players are around him and he goes down, there's al- there's always way more attention um, when when Robin's at the middle of it. Well, is it a tarnish because you know Robin, the, the style of his play is to get the ball and go directly at defenders, which I really like. I, I think it, it's exciting, it's direct, it's really it it causes problems for for most defenses and. You know what? A lot of times he is taken down pretty violently, and and I think he deserves a fair amount of protection. At the same time, you know, it doesn't it doesn't bother me that that he dives. I don't mind it. I you know, in the same way that I I don't mind Luis Suarez's antics, like you know, the racism <laughs> aside. Uh, uh, I mean, if I can say, I just think you know, if you're going to be theatrical, it's just so unbearably cheesy that the way that he dives, <laughs> the kind of yeah. the wailing and the extended sort of, you know, facial expressions. And I just think, you know, play it a little calmer if you're going to play it. Well, you think he'd practice you know, this stuff, right? Because you, you, it's a part of your game plan, dude. Practice diving. Get better yeah, at it. I, I'll say one thing. And and I don't know, I guess maybe referees just aren't uh, just, I mean, I'm sure they're attuned to this, but whenever you see a player go down and roll five times, he's generally not hurt. And when you see a player that's legitimately hurt, get hurt, they don't move the way, you know, when Neymar took the knee to the back this weekend, he just lay there on his stomach, essentially, until he was uh, escorted off the pitch. And the guys that do end up diving always end up doing three or four, you know, cartwheels and rolls and end up about 15 yards away from where they were actually fouled. And, and unfortunately, that, that happens quite often with Robin. Well, and, I think, and then, you know, players are being left unattended when they need, actually need to be yeah. attended to, you know, which I think is, is also a problem. Well, that's been- On the other hand, you know, with Robin, you've got to give the man his due. The balance of his movement is so fine. He's so kind of absolutely on a kind of knife edge as he moves at that speed, you know, he is going to get, and as you say, he's running right at defenders. He is going to get caught. He is going to get fouled a lot. So, 
you know, we should just bear that in mind. That said, the theatricals are excessive at times. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't take anything away from his ability on the ball. I think the fact that you do have to watch the replay to see if he was if he was actually hit or not also says volumes about him too because the way he moves and the way he changes direction so quickly like you, you're, you're actually not sure I and mean, even some of the defenders don't think they're going to get him and then they end up getting him because he changes direction so quickly yeah you know we have finally goal line technology to see if a, a ball went and i think probably the next step is offside technology I, w- I would imagine uh and then they've already started putting referees sorry linesmen i, I don't know what you would call them they're not refs they're not assistant, assistant referees is the technical term yes these days. at the end of the field so these guys have no frame of reference for looking at offside at all their their sole purpose it seems to me is to tell the referee if there was a foul in the box yeah so i guess maybe that'll be something that changes this i, I want to talk about the refereeing in general it feels to me like it's been too lax um we've had injuries to neymar to Di Maria, I think that the Nigerian team was really harmed by Mark Geiger's lack of calling fouls against France in their uh, what was that round of sixteen match. And then, and what about Brazil, Colombia? Brazil, Colombia, fifty-four fouls. Yes, but at the same time, was that you know was that the, the referee didn't really, you know, he, I guess Thiago Silva got a got a yellow card for doing his stupid blocking of the goalkeeper thing, but then he really it felt to me like he wasn't really taking control of the game, calming things down, protecting players. And I, I felt like that was wrong. And also Tim Krul, you know, I don't, I don't mind him playing mind games and him getting in the heads of, of those Costa Rican penalty kick takers. But it seemed to me like, why was the referee letting him sort of prance around the penalty area like that and talk to the, the kickers? You don't see that very often. Why was he doing that? Yeah, well, he's I'd... about six foot four. And would you want to stand in front of him? <laughs> I think is partly the, uh, the explanation. I think maybe the referee's, one, you know, the referee wasn't aware initially he was doing it. I don't know what actually is the rule. I'm interested to know what the interpretation of the rule is. That considered in some technical sense foul play. Let's look that up and get back to people after this because I'm not totally sure. But I don't think that there's any rule against the the goalkeeper coming up and and talking to the kicker. But I also think it's an unwritten rule that you know it. it I think it happens all the time where a, a goalkeeper tries to get in the head of the the kicker, but. The, the referee generally doesn't let the guy just sit there and have a conversation with them and then say, okay, like, are you done? I go back to your line. So. That's true. Well, you know, Chris Jones had a really great piece for, I believe it was ESPN, uh, where he wrote that, you know what? The, the, the penalty kick shootout is so stacked against goalkeepers. He, he, he made this point. Like, you know, if a player receives the ball in the box, turns and shoots, the muscle memory, the practice, it takes over. And you, the player is going to hit the target. 99% of the time, probably put it in a pretty good spot at this level. These players are world-class players. The only thing that makes a penalty kick hard is that walk to the ball, the fact that there's, you know, the expectation that they're going to score, and the, the the huge the huge consequences of missing. And so it becomes, you know, he, he, he mentions a, a hole in golf. I don't know what this hole is, but there's apparently a famous hole in golf where there's a pretty big-sized green 100 yards out from the tee, but it's in the middle of a huge lake. And that lake is the thing that makes it really difficult for golfers to, you know, pro elite golfers to make this shot consistently. And it's it's the same thing for, for penalty kicks. So Cruel basically getting in the heads of these players is giving him a better chance of saving this goal. He know, you know, the ball, he knows that the psychology is really the only thing on his side. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I, I think you, when you look at the, the Dutch penalties too, though, I, unfortunately I think the gamesmanship side of that, that whole uh, penalty shootout kind of grabbed all the headlines. And um, I read that, I read that article that you mentioned, and it was an excellent article. Um, but, but it also took away from the fact that the Dutch penalties were all excellent 
as well. You know, I mean, Navas dove uh, the right way for several of them, but the Dutch penalties were so good. And if you do your job and and the odds are in your favor, you know, if you put it where you need to put it, then it's going in. But um, but yeah, but Cruel did do a good job of getting in their heads. And I read that he'd, um, you know, he actually knew before the game that if it did go to penalties, that he would be called into action. And Sillison actually didn't know that. So um, Louis van Gaal, I guess, you know, when you talk about tactics and, and thinking ahead, it's it's pretty, pretty awesome when you think about it, because he didn't want his number one keeper thinking, oh, I'm coming off uh, because there's a better goalkeeper than me when it comes to penalty shootouts. So he was actually kind of perturbed when he did come off. And when Cruel went on, he was just fooling uh, or buzzing. He was fooled with confidence. And uh, I read another article saying that the Costa Rican players and the Costa Rican manager, when they saw Cruel get up to warm up, they all kind of like looked around and they said, if... Uh, if they could have captured those looks, it would have been hilarious because they were like, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, I think, you know, the the biggest mind game was probably just putting in a, a new keeper, right? I mean, that just yeah. any change like that sort of puts the Costa Rican team on the back foot and makes them think, wait, is this guy really good? Is is he better than than what, what you know, the, the goalkeeper we couldn't score on for, for 120 minutes? You know, that's <laughs> that's that's a that's a game. Yeah. Hey, George, I just want to ask you about the penalties. Isn't it, you know, isn't it true that that kind of intimidation and that getting in somebody's head constantly is going on all across the pitch all the time? It's going on in both boxes, defenders and attackers having a go at each other. And we just don't see it as much because in the melee of action, the cameras are not focused, but we see it when the penalties are taken. You know, in my in my days as a youth uh, elite youth soccer player. It didn't happen quite as much, but I bet Danny can answer that question. He's played at a slightly higher level. David, I'll say that it does go on. There's a lot. Of, there's plenty of you know trash talking. It was just talked about last week, um, going on a lot of you know jersey tugging and all that sort of stuff. But when in a penalty shootout where players are actually allowed to think now and not not rely on muscle memory and not allowed just on their um, their their sheer ability here, where they're walking up to the ball. Uh, they know the entire world is fixated on this one moment to see what they're going to do. Uh, that that's when that's when it changes a little bit. You know, when there's when there's still when there's 22 players involved and and um, you know there is a lot of action going on on and off the ball. It's a bit of a different story than when you're walking, all the cameras are pointed at you. You know, your your entire nation's hopes rest on your shoulders, and there's one man and a goal that you need to beat. So um, now the semifinals brazil germany this is a huge match uh germany has not hasn't seemed to play all that well up to now it's not it's not sort of crushed anyone the way it did portugal uh are they favorites now that neymar and thiago silva are are out for this game i think so i mean i, I think um it's a tough one actually because Germany have an extremely talented team and and they they're once again in the semifinals they're extremely efficient this this team is extremely tactically and technically excellent and Brazil have massive losses with with Neymar and Thiago Silva I think um, I was watching ESPN the other day and, and the guys were saying like what a massive loss Thiago Silva is but at the same time Dante is not that bad of a player either is he he's a he's a Champions League winner and and uh, Bayern Munich's uh, one of Bayern Munich's top guys when it comes to defense. So I think he'll slide in for Thiago Silva. And then it's it's a matter of figuring out what they do in the midfield with, with Neymar not there. And Germany's midfield um, is extremely, as we said, technical. They're able to keep the ball. They're able to, to put those passes in between lines and really attack when they want. Um, I, whether or not 
Brazil play an extremely ultra defensive midfield where they have the four in the back and then three kind of holding guys and and then their attack or if they decide to play Oscar kind of um, in the middle there and, and have a little bit more of a creative option. But uh, Neymar will be a huge miss in terms of creating things going forward. David David mentioned in our first episode, he said what Brazil lack is a playmaker here and, and taking Neymar out of the equation as well, I think will make it even more difficult for them. David, the other semifinal is Argentina-Netherlands. Game of really two superstars and I may I might be doing Van Persie a disservice here but it's really Robin has has been the 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 key player for for the Netherlands and and then of course Messi for for Argentina that said Aguero apparently is fit for this match and and English the English league for providing all of all of all of these great club teams has not been all that influential on this world Cup. there was a Barney Rone piece in the in the Guardian about this could he be the the savior for the Premier League but you know that said when you say two stars and that you know argentina is all messy watching that um watching the quarterfinal that team works so hard there's one star and then there's kind of 10 workhorses that make that make that team work and yeah i mean he makes the difference even for the goal, he didn't score it, but his move in midfield to actually make the goal was central. But the rest of the team is working so incredibly hard together. And I kind of think, actually, that's what might, you know, if, if they can have that and the moment from Messi, I slightly make them the favourite for, the, um, for this uh, semi-final. OK, let's take a quick break. Next up, we're going to look at the aftermath of the U.S. team's escape from the group of death and then demise in the round of 16, what it means for the players and the future of Major League Soccer. So the World Cup is over for the U.S., but there's still a lot happening in the aftermath. We have uh, two players in particular who seem to have caught the eye of big European teams, if you can believe the the press reports. Uh, DeAndre Yedlin linked with Roma, I believe, and, and maybe Liverpool. Danny, have you heard about this? Uh, I have. I saw the, the Roma link for sure. I hadn't seen Liverpool, but... Um, this this time of the year is is quite quite crazy when it comes to transfer rumors. Right. So you never know what to believe. The other one is Beasler. Matt Beasler played in the center of the U.S. defense. You know, I find it a little bit ironic that I, the U.S. didn't have a great tournament altogether. There, I don't think that any player stood out. The, the defense in particular created a lot of problems for Tim Howard that he had to clean up. We talked about that in an earlier edition of this podcast. Why is it the defenders who seem to be the most desirable coming out of this? Uh, well, I think it's uh, it's a, that is we watched it. We watched them at it quite a lot. We did. They yeah. got a lot of airtime, though. Exactly. I think that's the that's probably the reason is because uh, you know we didn't have too much. We didn't have too much, and this is going to sound harsh, but we didn't have too much going forward in our attack. And I think we ended up with like the second to last in, in number of attacks and attacks in the World Cup. So that that didn't help out, but. As David just said, we did get to see a lot of them, uh, a lot of them, and, and and their pros and their cons. And you know, these European teams look at this. Obviously, it's a massive growing market here, um, especially in terms of getting. I, I don't want to say relatively cheap players, but you can get players that are kind of for the future and, and guys that you you take a gamble on and, the, and then hope for the best. So, um, no, it's good. It's great to see. It's great to see. You know, the the World Cup ends, and we're all kind of disheartened about the fact that our team's gone out. 
but then it also revitalizes you to see that there are European teams kind of interested in bringing these guys over. So that's that's great for U.S. soccer. One thing that we do a lot over here in the U.S. is talk about the health of our soccer league in a way that I don't think you do. You don't need to in England. I mean, and it's a different – it's cast in a different light there, well, you know. I, I disagree. I mean, I think we do talk about it, but we uh, we are dealing with the pathologies and the illnesses of excess and affluence. That's right. It's a different kind of problem. I mean, if you measure the, uh, the, the health of English football by the uh, turnover of the premiership, then sure, everything is rosy. But you've got to see it in a more kind of complex light than that. So, and it's funny because I think most American fans want MLS to become more like the Premier League, you know, better players, uh, more money, you know, TV deals. Danny, would you say that this, or David, you as well, was there an effect of this World Cup on MLS? I mean, I think that beyond just the fact that there will be X number of the people who, who tuned in and sort of saw what soccer could be will will be interested in, in pursuing their fandom from, from here or, you know, but just on the field, players, should, will players move abroad? Is that a good thing? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the, the, the one big thing, and we discussed this earlier, I think the one big thing about the World Cup in the U.S. is, uh, we fight two battles. We fight the the battle of the actual national team and how they do, and then the battle of growth of soccer in the United States. And the the amount of press once again that the the U.S. national team got going into this tournament, while at the tournament, and even in their exit, you know, all the guys have been doing television appearances since since we got eliminated. It, it'll only help, and it, it it'll create more of a um, more of a culture where kids see that they can actually play the game, go to MLS, and then actually get a a, a big money move to Europe. You know, before I think. It was all about, I just want to get to Europe now. I just want to get to Europe now. Um, maybe maybe kids would do it and it wouldn't be the best of options and they find themselves coming back to MLS in a tricky situation a couple of years later. Whereas now the the league has become more and more competitive. And, and you know, the guys that the guys that did stand out, those two names that you said, DeAndre Edlin and Matt Beasler, those guys both play in MLS and they do well here. So, um, you know, if, if you take a if you take a look at the the tournament and see that those two guys have been linked to big moves uh, overseas and, and, and those guys were the two most successful, that's great to see for the league here. Well, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, Jermaine Jones and Fabian Johnson also had pretty good tournaments and they play abroad. And I just don't think there's as much excitement just because, you know, Jones is older, the same way Kyle Beckerman's older. I think he, if he were a 24-year-old, he would be getting a lot more attention for, for his performance. Um, okay, all MLS players are back with their teams except one, Julio Cesar for Brazil. He's, he's MLS's great hope to win a World Cup. Uh, he would be the first current MLS player to, to do that. Uh, and so I guess if you're rooting for MLS, you're rooting for Brazil uh, in that sense. I, I, I think that they have a tough road to the final and to, to the trophy, but it's going to be pretty fascinating. We're going to hear from Alex Abnos now. He is our editor with Howler. He, he spent the World Cup embedded with U.S. Soccer as USSoccer.com's uh, writer. Here's Alex. Hey, how's it going? This is Alex Abnos coming to you from Brazil. Uh, I'm actually in a bus station in Rio de Janeiro right now. Uh, I'm about to board an all-night bus to Belo Horizonte for the semifinal, but I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about the United States men's national team exit from the World Cup and kind of what comes next for them. Uh, looking back on that whole experience with the team and the whole run and how their post-game mood contrasted with their post-game mood after the Belgium game, I'd say the Belgium game, it was, 
it was definitely much more silent than usual. And, you know, you can interpret that a number, uh, a number of ways. You can say that, you know, it was silent because they knew that there was this huge opportunity in front of them that they didn't take advantage of, which I would say is partially true, based on comments both from Matt Beasler and Omar Gonzalez. They said as much uh, in their, in their post-game comments. But then also, you know, silence because I think they were all trying to kind of soak in the moment. You know, this was their last moments as a, a participating nation in this World Cup. And I think it was very uh, a very transformative experience for a lot of members of the squad. You know, some players will go on and maybe have huge career advancements because of their performances in the World Cup. For some of them, it's, it'll be their last World Cup, and for some of them, it might be their only World Cup. So I think a lot of them, you know, were kind of coming to terms within themselves with the fact that they were not in the tournament anymore and sort of what this means for them going forward, which is different for everybody. Um, as for the players themselves, what they do next, uh, they kind of have to move on quickly. Uh, immediately after the game, the team left. They flew back to their Sao Paulo home base. They had the morning in Sao Paulo. They had a team dinner and a team photograph with uh, staff and coaches. And then almost immediately afterwards, it was time for some of them to leave. And it wasn't as if there was one mass exodus and everybody said goodbye at the airport. One by one, the, t- the, mem- the team members left and went to you know, various places. Some of them had a vacation. Some of them had to get back with their teams. It really depended on where they played in MLS or in Europe uh, and that kind of thing. As for what kind of impact that this USA performance will have on American soccer, I don't think that's the kind of thing you can really know until at least a couple years after the fact. Right now, it's all too fresh. I think the United States did make a big statement by getting out of the group of death, a group that many people didn't expect them to get out of. But at the same time, they've also set that bar at that level. Now the U.S. is going to be expected to get out of their group no matter what. So the next step after that is being able to get out of the round of 16 no matter what. Uh, And I think it'll be a while before we reach that point. And I think in time... You know, this is just myself talking. I think in time we'll look back on the Belgium, the 2014 World Cup and that Belgium game as the first time the U.S. was really disappointed to not advance past the round of 16. It used to be that up until this point, anything past the round of 16 was gravy. Now I think, you know, we saw a team in Belgium that we had a chance to beat and that we matched up well with. And even though Belgium was very dominant at that game uh, in a lot of spots, and Tim Howard is to thank for a lot of it, I think that a lot of the players felt we still had a chance to win, um, and they were very disappointed that we couldn't go on. And I think this might be the first time when we can really say that we can have a legitimate disappointment in that regard. Um, And how historically significant is that? Who knows? But it is, uh, I think, the big takeaway from this World Cup. Anyway, that's all for me. I have to go catch this bus and hopefully maybe possibly get some sleep on it perhaps. This is Alex Abnos signing off from Brazil. Okay, time for another quick break. Next up, we're taking this discussion off the field. We'll be joined by Sean Jacobs, one of the people behind the media collective Africa is a Country, to talk about the problems facing African soccer and the performance of African teams in this World Cup.
I'm joined now by Sean Jacobs. Sean is a professor at the New School, teaching a class about international soccer and politics. And you are a native of Cape Town. You live, obviously, in the States now, in, in New York City. And I really want to talk to you about the African teams in this tournament. There were five. None are left, uh, obviously. And I think that they provided some of the most interesting, not only play on the field, because I think in, in some cases they were very good, especially, you know, Nigeria, Algeria. I think Ghana had some, some very nice moments, but also some storylines off the field that I think may have been puzzling to a lot of people who aren't all that familiar with African football, African politics, African society. What, what do you find most compelling here? What do you want to talk about first? If, if you want to start, like the thing with the Ghanaian football team and their spectacular meltdown, the way that they played in 2010 and then in 2012, they normally people don't associate Ghanaian football with fights over money or troubles within their camp. And yet they had this major meltdown. In contrast, you had Nigeria. There was talk of the fight over money when players didn't want to practice, but then it went away. And Nigeria actually seemed to have things under control. And I can say something later as to why that's the case. And then you had Cameroon with the meltdown on the field. Probably they're one of the most experienced players who plays for Barcelona. Uh, Song punching another player, you know, in the back. Right. Esuakoto also, you know, headbutted his his teammate uh, on the field. So let's talk about Ghana first. Ghana has a great soccer tradition, very successful in youth World Cups. You know, obviously they've been troublesome for the U.S. team in years past. And they started the tournament really well. You know, they, they nearly beat the U.S. Then they held Germany to a draw. They could have gotten through with a result against Portugal, but we saw before that game some drama, some of the veteran players holding out, causing trouble in camp, perhaps reacting to trouble that we didn't see. And, and the team as a whole demanding a boatload, I guess in this case a plane load of cash in order to keep playing. The thing about Ghana is like the obvious way to read it is, oh, you know, ill-disciplined, unpatriotic players, prima donnas who want money. And then the sort of the two villains are now Sudi Montari, who plays in Italy, and Kevin Prince-Bauteng of Schalke. That's usually how most people experience it. You know, people running around chasing people with broken bottles. I think Montari chased somebody with a broken bottle. But if you if you step back... Then what you realize is these are about not so much about whether these players are, are being dramatic. This is more about how football is being run in Ghana. Bauteng gave an interview right after he was suspended talking about the preparations that they went to the U.S. to have a camp in the U.S. They, went, they flew from Amsterdam. And what is normally, I think, like a seven-hour flight turned into a 19-hour flight, sitting in airports, traveling in two groups, finding that the president of the Ghanaian FA and his wife are sitting in first class with their children, sleeping in waterlogged hotels, just terrible preparations. And then on top of it, the question with money, that's just a longstanding problem, I think, with players and bonuses where players feel they don't get paid. And again, we have to say uh, it's not like Africans are unique in this regard. The first uh, group of players to refuse to play in a World Cup because of bonuses was actually Germany in 1974. But in the case of Ghana, I think these are more structural issues with how the FA is governed. What is wrong with the Ghanaian FA and what is, what, why are the players rebelling against it? To step back again, and, and it's a general problem of all FAs, but then it takes on a peculiar or a specific way that it plays out in Ghana. Governments can't fire FAs because FAs are, in terms of the FIFA constitution, uh, there should be no government interference. In some cases, FAs do fine. They govern football, there's enough checks and balances. But in instances where there aren't other institutions to counterbalance how football is run, you end up with somebody running football for sometimes two decades. And this, again, here, Africa is not unique. In South America, you have Crondona running Argentina's football, I think, since 1978. But 
The Ghanaian FA is run by Kwezi, I always forget his name, Nyantaki, who is currently being accused of match-fixing by a British newspaper, where he apparently, in secret recordings, uh, gave promises to fix a game. Secondly, when they went to Brazil, they took an entourage. There were stories about like who's paying for these people, how they were chosen. The person that Sulimontari fought with, he's a club official of one of the leading clubs in, in Ghana. He's not a technical advisor. What is he doing on the trip? I see. People never get paid their bonuses. So I think in a way what happened with the Ghanaian team is frustration over preparation, and Bauteng talks about that, mixed with a history of not ever getting paid. I think what happened here was... All that came to a head, and the players were like, you know what, this is the biggest stage to embarrass the Ghanaian FA and the people who are running it. Unfortunately, now that the tournament is over, they held a press conference, and their line is kind of players like Muntari and Bauteng, they are unpatriotic, not disciplined, and that the coach is going to you know, stay on. Let's talk about a country very close geographically to, to Ghana that had a very different set of circumstances that it was playing under. Nigeria, when the Nigerian team was playing through through the group stage, there were two instances of, of shootings at, at viewing parties in the northern part of the country. Now, I know that Boko Haram has been a, a huge problem in Nigeria. For people unfamiliar, that's the that's the group that took those, those girls. And, and they've been doing, besides that, a bunch of other really terrible things to, to people who live in northern Nigeria. Sean, to what extent is this a soccer problem? Because I suspect that it's really, you know, sort of a, a different problem that, you know, a host of African nations face with a weak central government trying to keep keep the edges together, uh, seeping into soccer. I think maybe with fans, but less so with the national team, because most of the players play in Europe. Camps can be held in, and in the preparations for like the World Cup, they were mostly held in Europe, in, in Britain specifically, and then in America. And then they went down to Brazil. So I'm not sure how the, the team was affected. But I think the Nigerian team, interestingly, had a different fate. But my sense was that Stephen Keshi... Now he's the coach. He's the first African so, coach to bring an African team through the group stage. Yeah, so you had... I think what Stephen Keshi did really successfully was to sort of insulate the team from all these other goings-on where the Nigerian FA is subject to political intrigue, which is sort of tangentially related to the troubles in the north. But like, who's running football? Is it a northerner? Is it a southerner? Are they close to the minister of sport? Are they opposed to the minister of sport? Do they have the ear of the president? And as I said in the beginning, FIFA doesn't really care about that. His own troubles with them, with the Nigerian FA that didn't pay him, that wants to interfere in how the team gets picked, he did really well to keep them out of it. So they kept that going up until the round of 16 match right before they played Argentina when you saw news emerging that players had refused to practice because they, they didn't get paid. I want to ask you one final thing. It's about Yaya Torre's comments that nobody was sad that the Ivory Coast went out of the tournament because they're African. What do you make of that? Do you think it's true? And, and, and also, I mean, to what extent does sort of the reception of these teams in the rest of the world matter in terms of not just a sporting sense, but, but to these players emotionally. I mean, they're going to be playing in the next World Cup. There will be five African teams playing in one of the most racist societies in, in the world, Russia, right? We see, we see stories coming out all the time of, of racism there, especially in the soccer arena. Um, what do you make of those comments? I think he's right, but I also think that Cote d'Ivoire's team has to take some blame itself for lack of tactics in, in that match. 
On the question of Russia, Yaya Toure himself actually a couple of months ago said that African players, black players should just boycott the World Cup in Russia because of the racism there. Most probably Yaya Toure is not going to be in that World Cup. Right. You know, Neither will be his brother or Drogba. So it will be a different team, including some players who do play in, in Russia, uh-huh. in, in the Nigerian team and so on. So, I mean, I can't say what will happen there till we get there. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of racism against African footballers like they were in the 1980s and the 1990s. Luckily, it's limited only to certain countries, particularly in, in Eastern Europe. And unfortunately, it seems also still at the World Cup, not... African players specifically, but also players of African descent, where you Zuniga, who took down uh, Neymar, which is a terrible foul, of course, but he was being called a monkey and so on. So, yeah, the stuff is widespread. Even if Yaituri makes excuses, it, it is a big problem. Yes, there's a, I think there's a structural problems that are larger than X's and O's when it comes to African teams. Sean Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us on Dummy. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter at football is a country. That's part of your website, Africa is a country, which is obviously meant ironically. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate you joining us on Dummy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We'll have links to the Africa is a country site and the excellent football is a country Twitter feed on our website. If you haven't checked them out yet, you should. Time for another quick break. And when we get back, we will uh, take a look into the stands, uh, broader socioeconomic racial uh, viewership, I guess, of, of this World Cup in Brazil. Okay, David, I want to ask you, there haven't been all that many black people uh, from Brazil, it seems, watching the games. They seem to have, you know, the, the, the crowd seem to have skewed richer, whiter. It's not a true demographic slice of, of the full spectrum of, of Brazilian society. Uh, what do you make of this? I think it's really sad. I mean, not only is it not a reflection of um, the sort of demographics of Brazil, it's not a reflection of the average football crowd in Brazil, which, though, it again, is still sort of skewed, I would say, to, you know, those with money, which means probably that you're white, um, is still a much more sort of mixed and popular occasion. But this has been... You know, not merely just sort of white and comfortable. Often this has been, you know, the elite have um, have been uh, at these games. And, you know, the, this has consequences. I mean, we get fantastic singing of the Brazilian national anthem. And, you know, obviously that's stirring of a little mawkish and there's the a cappella piece. But then actually the atmosphere during the games that I've been hearing, there have been long periods of silence. Um, a lot of real kind of nerviness, uh, an incredibly narrow range of singing. And I read and see um, on the Internet, you know, that there have been a whole variety of attempts to teach this bunch of Brazilian football fans some songs to sing. People are handing stuff out. So, you know, that it has consequences. And I also think there's a couple of kind of a, a nasty streak on occasion. I mean, you've got people um, abusing and booing um, President Rousseff at the uh, at the opening game uh, in pretty kind of unpleasant unpleasant terms. Um, you've then got the booing of the Chilean national anthem. Um, and the thing that really gets me is, you know, when you've got games where much of the crowd is Brazilian, they're neutrals. When the game kind of dips for a bit, there's a kind of impatience with like, why am I not? being served my sumptuous dinner of football you know the moment the kind of pace drops and i find all of those things slightly irksome i mean that said it's worth saying you know brazil is not the only um 
country whose fans do not reflect the real demographic of the country. I mean, you know, Colombians, for example, um, whose team is, you know, very much Afro-Colombian, perhaps half the squad. Similarly, Ecuadorians even more so. Um, you're not going to see too many people of colour in the crowd. And I suspect the same goes for European fans as well. That was great. I want to move on now to Tiki Taka as soon as we have this little musical interlude. We're almost out of time, but let's take one moment and wrap this thing up with Tiki Taka. Uh, you guys always bring such good stuff to the table. What do you have today, Danny? Uh, so this goes back to, I know we spoke about this, uh, the German, the German camp, I guess, and, and their, um, the, the place they were staying throughout the tournament. Uh, well, the Dutch apparently are having to move out of their hotel in Rio because FIFA's executives are moving in. Um, now, apparently Louis van Gaal and the whole Dutch Federation knew this would be the case before the World Cup. But they're still quite up in arms about it, just because of how kind of how comfortable they've been uh, having this base uh, throughout throughout the tournament, and now they're having to seek uh, alternate lodging for the semifinal and, and possibly the final. So I thought that was kind of interesting. All right, uh, David, how about you? I'm just going to go with the people of Colombia as my favorite thing of the week. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of uh, the team's return to Bogota, but really, you would have thought they'd won the World Cup rather than just being the losing quarterfinalists. An absolutely amazing display at a really kind of interesting moment in Colombia's history on the verge, you know, of finally sorting a peace process after 30 years of narco wars. So I just want to let's, you know, celebrate the Colombian team who, you know, entertained us royally and the Colombian people for showing us that it's not actually all about winning. That's great. Okay. So I want to talk about, I want to go back to Tim Krull and the fact that he was subbed in explicitly to, to save penalty kicks at the end of the, the, the quarterfinal match against Costa Rica. Now on this, I keep saying I'm not going to do this anymore, but on soccer.fusion.net, the site that I'm editing this this summer, uh, we had a really fun piece about the history of coaches using substitute goalkeepers in penalty kick shootouts. And it's never been done in the World Cup, as far as we know, but it has been done in club soccer quite a bit. And it's been successful before. It's It's been a disaster before. Probably the most disastrous moment that has ever happened because a sub was put into a game is uh, a goalkeeper named Jasmine... Fe, Fe, I'm going to get this wrong. Fezik. Uh, he, he's a Bosnian goalkeeper. He was a, he was on the Bosnian squad for this World Cup. But back in 2012, he was a substitute goalkeeper at Greuther Firth in Germany. They were playing, they're a small team. They were playing Borussia Dortmund in the German Cup semifinal. Uh, the goalkeeper had spent all season on the bench, but the coach said, you know what? If we get it to penalty kicks, I'm going to put you in the, what is this team called? Goither Firth heroically kept the, the score goalless up until the 118th minute. And when that happened, uh, the goalkeeper, the first choice goalkeeper who'd played out of his mind came off. Uh, Jasmine Fazik went in, uh, took his place. There's, there's footage of this on YouTube. So I know that when the clock hit 119 minutes and 55 seconds, that's five seconds left in extra time, not counting, uh, stoppage time. 
the Borussia Dortmund got the ball. A player at the top of the box hit a shot. It was a volley, hit the post. Faziak was a little late on the dive. He missed it, but the ball hit the post. But he was, as he was sort of still outstretched, the ball rebounded off the post, onto his back, and into the goal. And watching his teammates just collapse on the field after they had done everything they could to keep Borussia Dortmund, a very big team, from scoring all game, is just tragic. Like, it it really made my heart hurt for these people. No. <laughs> I just hope that boy's got a big therapy fund somewhere. Oh my God. And the whole town. You know, I can imagine that the therapists in Greuther Firth, <laughs> if that's the name of the place, really had some good business after that. It was just heartbreaking. But you can see a, a video of that and read the story on soccer.fusion.net. I highly recommend it. It's amazing. Well, that does it for this episode of Dummy, but don't turn it off just yet. We've been working with EA Sports on a contest. EA Sports makes those FIFA video games I'm sure you're familiar. They're flying 25 people up to Seattle, putting them up in a hotel, taking them to see the Sounders play Tottenham Hotspur. And here's the really cool part. Those 25 people will be part of a FIFA soccer video game tournament, along with players from both teams. We put the call out on Twitter, on Facebook, in our weekly email bulletin, which you can sign up for right now at howlermagazine.com. We ask for submissions in the form of a minute-long audio clip explaining why we should pick you to go to Seattle. We did that because the winner is going to help us make a new episode of Howler Radio about the experience. The submissions ran the gamut from really nice and earnest... My older brother taught me everything I know about soccer. ...to a little bit evil... There's no other team in the world I despise more than Tottenham, so if you want to send me to Seattle, do it. Do it because I'd love to warmly shake the hand of a Tottenham player while I look him in the eyes and get a chance to call him a cup. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, finally, we settled on a winner, and I'm going to play the audio from that submission in just a second. But before I do, I want you to know that we will be running two more of these contests starting this week. One is for Liverpool-Manchester City, the game they're playing in New York on July 30th, and the other is for the MLS All-Star game in Portland, where the MLS All-Stars will be taking on Bayern Munich, that's happening August 6th. So please follow along with us on Twitter. We are at What a Howler for details on how to send in submissions. And you, too, could be playing video games with pro soccer players. Here's our winner, Stephen Whiting. Good morning, Howler powers at B. This is Stephen Whiting coming to you from a Dillard stock room in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. We've got bargain basement prices on men's footwear, but I'll save it for another time. Honestly, I had prepared 60 seconds of beautiful, detailed, to-the-minute plans of me, Jan Vertonghen, top of the Space Needle. We've got soccer tennis, assless chaps, bacon and whiskey. But alas, I see now that you don't have a section for that. So quickly now, I'm running out of time, just like Roberto Soldado in front of goal. 20 seconds to go. My experience with FIFA is that is actually how I became a European soccer fan. Leeds United, 2002, I feel like I invested in Enron at the last minute because no team is worse at squandering money than Leeds United as opposed to Tottenham and Seattle. Nothing to show for it. It sucks. Okay, congratulations to Stephen, and I hope that you too will send in a submission for uh, one of the trips we have coming up. Please check our website, howlermagazine.com, for more details. Those will go live later this week. Okay, back to the credits. 
I want to thank our panelists, David Goldblatt and Danny Carbassian. They've been with us all summer. Sean Jacobs was our guest today. Alexander Abnos has been checking in periodically from Brazil. Thanks also to Slate. The guys that hang up and listen are so great. If you're hearing this podcast through our own feed, the Howler Radio feed, you should go check out the sports podcast that Slate puts out. Josh Levine, Mike Volo, and Andy Bowers have put our podcast in their feed. So you might be hearing this podcast through Slate's feed. If you're doing that, then please come and subscribe to ours. It's Howler Radio. It's in iTunes, wherever else you might listen to podcasts. Most of all, thank you for listening. If you're not following us on Twitter, you should be at What a Howler. It's also our name on Instagram. If you want more World Cup stories, check out our radio documentary series. We track down some of the great soccer stories from all over the world, including El Salvador and American Samoa. To right here in 1950s America, you can hear those at howlermagazine.com slash radio or in our podcast feed on iTunes. The Howler Singers are led by Lindsay Elliott. They are members of a choral ensemble called Ghost Light, and they made our theme tune. All the rest of the music is by Brian Kim. This podcast was produced by Matthew Nelson with help from Ryan Katniss, Kira Deppenbrock, and Malena Barajas. My name is George Gracie. I'll be back with you on Friday with all the rest of these dummies. Until then, happy World Cup. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>